0: Support for today's episode of Script Apart comes from Wii Screenplay. If you've just completed a draft of a script and are wondering what next, well, you need to check out Wii Screenplay. We Screenplay not only offers amazing free resources, like virtual events where your questions are answered by Hollywood's leading professionals, with incredible 72-hour turnaround, format-specific feedback tailored to your specific goals, and a price that no one else can come close to, We Screenplay coverage is used by thousands of writers in every phase of their careers, from emerging writers still finding their voice, all the way to Oscar winners. So if your script is all ready to go, check out one of We Screenplay's labs where dozens of writers have been repped, optioned, and staffed as a direct result of the real-life industry meetings and hands-on workshops offered by We Screenplay. Don't stay stuck. We Screenplay want to help. Check out We Screenplay by visiting screenplay.com or clicking the link in today's show notes. Support for this episode also comes from our friends at Arc Studio Pro. Arc Studio is the screenwriting software used to create incredible shows and movies such as the acclaimed Netflix animation Arcane. It has a ton of features designed to unlock your creativity on the page, whether you're a seasoned industry professional or a first-time writer discovering your voice. Arc is all about minimum distraction and maximum ease of collaboration. There's an outlining whiteboard for mapping out your story, automatic draft management for keeping those scripts safe, and it also offers real-time collaboration similar to Google Docs making it the easiest way to run a professional writer's room or just to write that great idea for a script that you have with a friend. Try it today. Head to arcstudiopro.com forward slash script apart, where you can get $30 off a pro account by using the code friends at checkout. Click the link in today's show notes to take your screenwriting to the next level. Hey guys, welcome back to another episode of Script Apart. My name's Al Horner, and this is a podcast about the first draft secrets of great movies and TV shows. Each episode, a brilliant screenwriter breaks down their first draft for what became a beloved movie or series. On today's show, don't go down to the basement, right guys? Rule number one of surviving a horror movie. One of the many miracles of Barbarian, the astonishing feature debut from my guest today, Zach Kregger, was how it took that tried and tested trope of the horror genre and managed to mutate it into something so surprising, so unpredictable. Kind of like the basement-dwelling creature at the heart of the movie, Barbarian roared out of the shadows seemingly from nowhere to become one of the biggest smashes of 2022, a box office-topping behemoth admired by everyone from Stephen King to Jordan Peele. If you've seen the film, it will not surprise you at all to learn that such an unusually structured story kind of came about in an unusual way. In the conversation you're about to hear, Zach tells me how the movie actually began as just one scene. A woman called Tess checks into an Airbnb only to discover that there's someone else already inside. There, she must decode a situation fraught with potential danger. Is the man that she's marooned in this apartment with a friend or is he a threat? Zack wrote the scene unsure where it was leading until eventually his subconscious took over the rest of the film as you'll hear kind of spilled out of him intuitively from that moment on resulting in a deliciously twisty maze of a movie full of humor as well as horror this is a spoiler filled conversation so if you're yet to see barbarian you may want to pause now then come back when you've seen the film If you are up to speed however, listen on for fascinating revelations about how Zack's own experience of an alcoholic father quietly informed his script. We talk about why it was important to leave absolutely no ambiguity whatsoever around the true nature of AJ, Justin Long's character, and what the film expresses about toxic masculinity. We also get into Zack's original ending for the movie as well as some other interesting changes from script to screen. I had as much fun talking about this movie with Zach as I did watching Barbarian, which if you've seen the film, you'll know is high praise indeed. This is one of the funnest, most unique experiences you'll have in a cinema all year. Um, a quick shout out before we dive in to our Patreon community. If you like what we do and want to help the show continue to grow, you can join us on Patreon by visiting patreon.com forward slash We really do appreciate your support. Okay, with that out of the way, let's get into it, shall we? This is the amazing Zach Kreger talking about the first draft secrets of Barbarian, one of my favourite movies of 2022. Thank you guys for tuning in. You're listening to Script Apart, hosted by me, Al Horner, produced by Camille Demegg. Hey Zach, welcome to Script Apart. Thank you so much for joining us. Um, You know, I'm going to dive straight into the big talking point of this movie, or at least the talking point that I think deserves to be the main kind of point of discussion. I've seen a lot of great movies this year, man. Barbarian, however, is the only one that has revolutionized my duvet game. (laughs) Uh, Keith really came through for me on that front. I'm now changing my duvets quicker and easier than ever before. So shout out to Keith. Good job, Keith. Good
1: job, Keith. Uh, You don't have to go all the way in. You know, you can just like put your hands in it. Like I did it last night and it's like, you turn it inside. I put my hands and find the corners and it's kind of up around my neck. I don't go all the way in it like he does, you know, um, but uh, it does work.
0: It does. Yeah. It's also raised the bar for me now. You know, when I go see Wakanda forever this weekend, there better be some handy tip on how to peel carrots or organize my recycling. If I you're demand learning life hacks. practical skills from a movie, then what are you
1: doing? You know, exactly. what are we doing?
0: Right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> in all seriousness, though, man, like huge congratulations on this film. Um, Thank you. I can, Im- I can imagine it's been and probably continues to be quite the adjustment wrapping your head around the reaction to Barbarian. Has there been one particular moment, however big or small, that stands out as particularly surreal in the journey to this film becoming the phenomenon that it's become?
1: Yeah, there was one moment. It was um I was in Toronto and uh we had screened I, it, this movie was not part of the official TIFF uh lineup, but we screened it like a midnight madness kind of a thing uh before TIFF. So it's like the night before TIFF starts, they do this like at midnight they do kind of like a a genre kind of a cheap grindhouse sort of a vibe usually. And this year it was Barbarian. Uh, And it was really, it was really great screening. Um, But I knew that the next morning I would wake up and the, and the press embargo would be lifted. And uh, I was nervous about it. I was expecting to get mixed at best, you know?
0: Um, Why was that? Why was I expecting that? Yeah, is it just because it takes so many kind of tonal risks? Because uh, it's a horror movie where people get their arms ripped off and beat to death
1: with them, <laughs> and you know, and and I thought people would think, I, you know, what I was expecting is I was I was expecting to be like Barbarian thinks it's smarter than it is. Uh, I, you know, some horror people will find joys in its, you know, camp, but it's a movie that takes big swings and misses more than it more than it connects. That's kind of what I had prepped myself for. Um... Anyway, but, but you know what, it was, I I feel gross talking about this because it's, it's gross, (laughs) but, but, but it's, it's the true answer to your question is, you know, I looked at Rotten Tomatoes and it had, at that time it had a 96, it's gone down now to a 92, but it had a 96. Um, And I, I just was like scrolling through and seeing like the, the, the reviews from like the New York Times and the Washington Post and Variety and Seattle Times and all these places that, you know, really were the heavy hitter tastemaker places were all like they not only did they get it, but they seem to really, really enjoy it. And, um, I, I look, I, I'm certainly one of those people who's like, thinks very mixed feelings about Rotten Tomatoes. I think oftentimes Rotten Tomatoes is kind of like the enemy of, of, um, of where we should be as a, as a film culture or whatever. But when it goes your way, it's fun <laughs> to revel in it. And then that morning I reveled and, um, and yeah, especially for horror it's like i i don't trust rotten tomato scores for because i think there's a lot of brilliant horror movies that get panned by rotten tomatoes and i think there's some terrible ones that get like you know 100 it's just like come on like you that can't be the barometer of quality (laughs) but i i will i will totally you know admit that in that morning i i shed a tear and i was just like so gratified to to see that like i i I wasn't totally wrong in taking these big swings. You know, it took me years to get this movie made. It took me years to get anybody to say yes to producing this thing because it's a weird movie and it just resets itself on page forty-five, and we follow a rapist for thirty pages, and it doesn't it doesn't fit the standard model. It's not a three act structure. It's a it's a weird one, and and I had many many times where you know I I, I was rejected so much by by truly everyone I could get it to said no. Um and then there were moments where people were like we'll do it but you can't direct it and we're going to shave all the cool shit out of it and I said no and it was like it was just very gratifying to be like wow I I like, I feel so gross saying this but whatever but but it was a very gratifying day where I was like I stuck to my guns and um and I, I it feels like it's it it was the right move and um and that morning it just kind of felt like it was the first time I was able to to like kind of let my guard down a little bit. You know, I was very proud of the movie before I saw any Rotten Tomato score. I was like, I made the movie I wanted and that's a victory. And a, you know, I can sleep soundly knowing that like I did the thing. But to to have it be like, oh, I did the thing and people people agree that that it was worth it was worth it. Um that felt really
0: good. What were some of the cool things then that um studios were trying to kind of encourage you to take out?
1: I think uh, you know, I think that the AJ character would not have been a rapist. I don't know what the movie would have looked like if that had been changed. I think they wouldn't Mm. have wanted to introduce him on page 45. I think they would have wanted to like weave his narrative in. So maybe we would have been jumping back and forth, um, which I think would have been not the right move. Um, I think that, uh, you know, we would have to really defang the backstory of like, you know, incest rape, you know, cycles. And that, that probably would have been like, Muted, if not totally altered, and um, I don't think I would have been able to cast who I cast. You know, I think there's just a lot of things that would have changed. Um, But luckily, you know, this was an independent movie that was, you know, I scraped together three and a half million dollars through overseas funds, and so we got everything ready to go. Um, And then our the the way it became a studio movie is like truly on the day of my going away party to go to Bulgaria to start shooting, uh, my financier died and the movie was yeah, basically right. canceled. And then at the 11th hour, we got Roy Lee, my producer got uh, new Regency to read the script. And he was like, you have 24 hours to like read the script and give me an answer. And they read it and they upped the budget to four and a half million dollars. And they were like, you seem to already be about to shoot the movie. So there's no point of giving you any notes. So I guess, you know, go (laughs) shoot the movie and we'll see what happens. Like, I think they were just doing Roy a favor. So I got to go make this movie with no studio notes, like really none. So I got to shoot the movie I, I wrote and thank God I did. And then I came back and they liked it. And here we are. So it was a real kind of a a back door into into making a studio movie. It never happens this way. It never this this will never this is not a model for aspiring filmmakers. <laughs> you know what I mean?
0: <laughs> As you say it it resonated with critics. It's also resonated with audiences in a huge way. Is there anything you think we can read into the film's success in terms of what audiences have perhaps been hungry for in our current movie landscape? Like beyond just how well told this story is and I guess the power of its many surprises. What do you see as being key to why Barbarian has connected so emphatically?
1: I think it's fun. I, I don't know. I, I mean, I don't. I, I don't know if uh, if I can surmise as to why it seems to have resonated with people. I, I think at the end of the day, I hate that phrase that I just used. but I think. Uh, <laughs> I just, I just think it's because it's, it's just a fun movie. It's scary. It's funny. It's a ride. It's, if, if, if I may be so bold, it's, it's, it's not really dull. You know, I think the, the scenes in the movie that are not like adrenaline rush are scenes where your, your brain is still so actively engaged because you're trying to figure out what this movie is, you know? And I think, you know, when watching a guy have a meeting with his business manager to talk about finances is not the kind of scene you normally would expect. <laughs> from a horror movie, but that scene works because people are leaning forward to be like, why are we watching this? Yeah. What is this for? And I think that's, it's the context that makes it work. So I, I, I don't know, I just, I just think that it's, um, I've never seen a movie like it before. And I think, I think, I think other
0: people would, would say the same. The unpredictability that you mentioned there as being one of the kind of main calling cards of this film, one of the main reasons for its success from what I understand, that's kind of reflective of the flow and the freedom with which you wrote this movie. Um c- can you give our listeners an overview of what the actual writing process was like because it sounds like it was a little bit unorthodox and and yeah, really interesting.
1: I mean so so Barbarian did not I did not write it the way I've written other scripts, you know. Um uh I didn't write it I didn't sit down to write it to, to be a movie, you know, really. I just, I, I was in this chair right here late at night. And w- the way I, I, uh, I wrote this one is like, I wrote it all at night. Um, I have these like colored light bulbs. So like I turn this room like green or red, like really dark, weird, creepy colors. I put on this pulsing. Horrible, evil ambient music. So it's just like, it feels like a layer in here. And it just kind of gets me in the creepy zone. And then I just honestly, like, I thought of a double booked Airbnb and I thought of how scary that would be for a woman. And I was just like, I'm just going to just start writing what happens. I don't know what's going to happen. And I'm just going to follow my fingers. You know, like Stephen King has that wonderful analogy where he's like, he writes his process is like, You're a paleontologist and you're you're unearthing a dinosaur skeleton one bone at a time and you don't know what the dinosaur is you're just following the fossils and they reveal to you the shape of the story and oftentimes i've written scripts following like the save the cat kind of beat map and i've outlined before but with barbarian i I really didn't do anything like that i just i just was an audience member truly and so I just kind of followed my nose and it was, it was really fun. It was just like the way a little kid colors with crayons. I, you know, I never thought I would show anybody, you know, so I didn't feel like I had to obey any rules whatsoever. So, it, you know, it was just this free creative lark. And then as I wrote, you know, um, it took me a few nights to get her down under the house and eventually it was time for the character Keith to do whatever it was he was going to do. And I just had this realization that like there's nothing he can do. Like, there's, there's really no move he can pull that's going to surprise anybody. Because, you know, anybody who's going to read this uh, has seen this coming since page two, when he opens the door. So, like, what, you know, I basically wasted my time. And then... Um, <laughs> I was like annoyed with it. I was just like, well, this fucking sucks. I've wasted 45 pages and you know, four nights of my life and whatever. I didn't care. But, and because I didn't care, I was just like, and then a giant naked lady comes out of nowhere and smashes his head to pieces. And I was like, well, (laughs) fuck, that's pretty cool. I like that. Now I like it. Oh, wow. And then, um, and then I was just like, what's the, what would be the most fun thing to go to now? And I was like the Pacific ocean in California. And I mean, it it all just kind of came flooding in. Like I was like, okay, the opposite of the first act, the photo negative, if the first act is about a woman being hyper vigilant and hyper aware and categorizing behavior, then the inverse of that is a predator with no awareness who's completely oblivious. And so I just, I just like followed this guy. And I kind of, it all honestly kind of just came to me in a big flood, like an instantaneous flood, where I kind of saw what the movie would be for the first time when I, when I thought of the Pacific Ocean. And I was like, okay, let's just like, let's just follow this. And then I did. And, um, you know, I'm a, I'm a big fan of, um, David Lynch's writing process. I don't know if you've read Catching the Big Fish, his book, but like I, I've really tried and I don't always, but I try and incorporate transcendental meditation into my writing. So, you know, for me, the process of writing is, is always like I write and then I get stuck you know, and then I write and then I get stuck. And when I get stuck, I feel despair and I feel like it's broken. It's ruined. I've wasted my time. No one's going to like it. And then I go and I meditate and, and not always, not, not even often, but sometimes, uh, the meditation will present the solution to me. It'll just come out of the dark and, 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 um, it is. I like how David Lynch describes it as like catching the big fish. You know, like I, you, you, I dive deep into this murky black water of my mind and somehow I'll snag the solution. And um, usually it just comes, it just like appears perfect. Um, and so my job is really I, I, to just be receptive to those ideas. I don't really feel like I, for a lot of my stuff, I don't feel like it's up to me what I write. I you know, I don't get to decide, oh, this will be I'm going to make it funny or I'm going to make it this. I I literally I just try and stay like an antenna that is open to whatever the the vibration of the story. Uh, that's a crazy sentence that I just said, <laughs> but I just try and stay open. I just try and stay receptive because, because the ideas don't come from me. It feels like it feels like they're out there and I just have to find them. You know, I have to let them appear to me and, and when they come I just kind of intuitively feel like that feels like the right idea. That's what the story wants. And then I just allow that to go. So it's a weird thing, but I, I, I try and get my conscious mind um, completely out of the equation. And I try and, comp- I try and be a total conduit to my subconscious mind as I'm writing. And um, that was certainly the case for barbarian. Now other scripts I've written before then, you know, I have done note cards and save the cat beat sheets and all of that stuff. And I, and I will also say that I love those scripts. Like, in fact, my favorite script I've ever written in my life is not Barbarian. It's a script that was completely a slave to the save the cat um, beat sheet model. And I, I really, I was like, I'm going to hit the page numbers that Blake Snyder wants me to hit for like my act breaks. I'm going to hit that page. And I did. And I, and I, and the script came out like really special and I, and I I deeply love it. I like it more than barbarian. So I'm not saying that one way is better than the other. I'm, but, but for the, for the purposes of, of how barbarian was written, it was a total intuitive process.
0: You know, it's, it's, uh, it's interesting when I came across in my research, the fact that, uh, your relationship with horror began at age seven. You were at a sleepover, I think, and you you saw the show. I don't think I was
1: seven. Time. I don't think I was seven, but I was oh, very really was young. That? I
0: was I was a kid,
1: but I, that's too young to. watch I was going to say when I came across that quote. No, I think I was like twelve. Or 13, you know, mm. an appropriate age, you know, maybe <laughs> arguably not. But I mean, I, if I had a 12 year old and I found out, I don't have any kids, but if I had a 12 year old and I found out he watched The Shining, I wouldn't be worried. I'd be like, oh, oh, man, did you like it? You know, like, <laughs> um, but if I had a seven year old who watched The Shining, I'd be like, who were the adults in the house and what is their phone number? You know what I mean? Like, yeah. I, I, would, I would be upset. A
0: little um, Too close in age to, uh, was it Danny Lloyd? Is that the yeah, actor? yeah, that's um, that's too much. But I wasn't surprised to find out that that was the beginning of your relationship with the genre, because obviously Barbarian is a vastly different movie to The Shining. But there is a little bit of that kind of Kubrickian sense of like a filmmaker spilling his subconscious onto the page. And Mm. that results in a lot of surprises and a a lot of rich layering that, you know. Reveals itself on repeat watches and things like that. And that's something that happens when, uh, f- from the sounds of it, you know, you hand over, you've, you've handed over the keys to your story to the deepest parts of your psyche when, right. when you've written this movie. Hopefully,
1: you know, I find when I sit down to write, I just if I just want to get my fingers moving. And even if I have outlined something, I just want to, you know, the first draft is going to be terrible. And, and my <laughs> and I named the document like brutally rough Blah, whatever the title is, you know? Yeah. So that I, I am giving myself permission to just shit it out and not, not judge it and let it be bad. Uh, sometimes I know I have a scene. I know what the scene needs to be, but I don't have the energy to like write the scene well. I will just be like, I will just start writing like the placeholder kind of, kind of dialogue or whatever. But what always happens is when I let myself get into that mode of like, who gives a shit, just get to the end and we'll come back and we'll make it good later. Often what I find is that the best stuff comes out of that, you know, because I, because I've completely let myself off the hook and I'm not result oriented. I'm just, I'm just flow oriented. Very frequently, that is when my favorite things in the script will come out of it. And I find I don't have to go back and rewrite it. And oftentimes when I sit there and I really go slow and I think deeply about like how this should play out and I start crafting it, it's pretty lame, you know, and I got to come back and I got to like actually do a lot more rolling up the sleeves and scrubbing. Um, So I've that's just something I've learned about myself is that the, the more kind of careless I am the more i allow my subconscious to take over and and as long as i'm a conduit and not a creator uh, then better things happen for me
0: and the word subconscious is an important one you know the the film wasn't just written in a way that handed over the keys to your subconscious it's also a movie that certainly in that first act from what i understand it's kind of about subconscious Mm, it is that's true can you tell our listeners about The Gift of Fear by Gavin DeBecker? The, yes. Uh, I, yeah, that's a book, obviously, for any readers, uh, listeners who aren't aware. It's kind of about like the signals our brains are constantly processing that teach us to survive. Maybe you have a better definition, Zach, but that's that was. No, my you you've hit it
1: exactly. It's it's um, you know, it's it's saying that every person is born with the subconscious alarm system, you know, that that has been like programmed into us from when we were, you know, you know. Ancient primates and um, and basically uh, society has trained us and primarily women to ignore we that 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 alarm system has been kind of socialized out of us very frequently and and the the, the premise of the book is basically saying. Um, your fear, your internal subconscious, you know, alarm bells. That that is a gift, and you should you should honor it. And so, it's there's a lot of examples in this book where he talks about women entering situations with men, where men are doing very subtle things. That are not necessarily nefarious, but, but, um, but your internal red flags are rising. And so those things could be like a man touching you in a non-sexual way that you didn't initiate or injecting sexuality into a non-sexual conversation or forced teaming. Forced teaming means like using the word we a lot and kind of, kind of subconsciously trying to like pair you and him together as a unit when it's not really appropriate or doing you a favor that you didn't ask for, you know, that sort of thing. And he's saying, um, women especially need to be more aware when they see these behaviors and you need to not be afraid to be uh sticking gear boundaries you know and um and anyway so i was reading that that book and i just i just had the realization um that god like i don't have to think about this stuff ever because i'm a man and it's just like yeah. i I just never have to worry that you know half the population could pose some potential threat to me um Cause I, I live in a completely alien psychic landscape than women do, even if I'm s- sitting in the same room. And so that was just really, really a compelling. Concept for me, and so the idea of a scene with a double booked Airbnb really to me it was an opportunity to load an interaction between a man and a woman with as many of these micro red flags as possible. So when Keith says, "Oh Tess, pretty name," he's injecting sexuality. When he makes her tea she didn't ask for, he's doing a favor. When he's like, "Come inside and we'll call these idiots," he's force teaming. All of these are called pins, according to Gavin De Becker. That's an acronym for um, pre incident notifiers right it's like like they don't necessarily mean he's a bad guy but these are the kind of things that will happen before an incident and you want to pay attention if there's a lot of pins you want to get the fuck out of the situation (laughs) and so tess has a really good you know tess is smart and she's she's clocking these pins but she doesn't leave um and 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 you know ultimately she was i guess right because keith isn't you know, the villain of the, of the movie. But, um, but that was the machine that I was, that was the engine of the first act.
0: And I'll be curious to hear Zach, like the, the, the finished scene in the movie, like it orchestrates this really compelling kind of psychological tug of war in the viewer. Like every single shot, every single like second that passes seems to kind of pull you in one way to thinking, okay, there's something nefarious about him or, oh, look, there's his toothbrush, which is weirdly mm-hmm. calming and sort of, that's just such a normalizing item to right. have.
1: Well, the toothbrush, that's evidence that he is a short-term tenant. You know, if he'd lived yeah. here, he wouldn't have that toothbrush plugged in on the ground like that. That's what you do when you're staying for one night. You know, his little travel shampoo. Like, okay, that is driving home the narrative that he presented to me. You know, unless he's like really put a lot of energy into, into this. But like... For him to go into the bathroom and arrange his toiletries in this way is uh, pretty pretty above and beyond for someone laying a trap. So so yes, that is her like giving herself permission to kind of believe him, you know. Um,
0: but was it getting the balance? Right. Was was it tricky? Did it involve a lot of tinkering? Because it really is so finely poised. And as I say, it is almost from line of dialogue to line of dialogue, shot to shot, You're a little bit in different directions.
1: I mean, it's all on the page, and you know, I, I shot it very, very. Calcu- I was very calculated with the shot list, so I knew exactly before I got on set exactly what I was going to be. You know, where the cameras would be, and you know, with 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 Bill, my whole direction to him was like, dude, the only thing you got to do as this is not be creepy. You know, the nicer you are, the more everyone is going to be convinced you're the bad guy. You know, we got to be aware of the movie people think they're watching. And what would that movie try and do? That movie would try and make you look nice. So that's <laughs> what we do, you know. And yeah. and he got it. He was on the same page. Um, now, there were little things like, for example, in the script and what we shot was she comes out of the room after photographing his wallet and gives it back to him. She's like, I'm going to go take a shower. And then she takes a shower. And I was really excited because I got the clear shower curtain and I framed it like the psycho shot where I was, you know, like all this negative space. So you kind of see out into the shower. I was like, oh, I'm like paying homage to psycho here. And, um, you know, it's tense. Uh, and then we screened it and our first friends and family screening and every woman was like, she would never go in the bathroom and take a shower. And I was like, Oh, okay. Good to know. <laughs> so so I, I cut the shower out and I had an ADR her instead of saying, I'm going to go take a shower saying I'm going to go wash up. And so yeah. there, that was a little bit of like the
0: tug of war of like, let's fine tune it and get the tension right here. That's interesting. Yeah. And what's so cool about like these opening 30 pages or so is as you say, like a lot of the things happening, are kind of like uh things we've seen before but you find a fresh approach to them and and Tess as as you kind of noted earlier she's smart like historically basements on screen like th- they're kind of physical the g- the geography of them and uh the horrors they always contain they've kind of typically represented this sort of descent into the dark into the abyss right. and uh that's a part of like horror storytelling the way that Tess kind of like, well, you you'll, you'll tease her kind of being about to make the sort of dumb decision that characters in horror movies often mm-hmm. make, and then you she literally will say nope and yeah. construct a different, smarter plan. Was this something that you had thought about and were purposefully kind of trying to put into your script? Like, did it end, or did it end up in the movie organically from just having sat through so many movies where you're you're screaming, "Don't go down there at the screen!" Like, talk me through it, Zach.
1: It's not conscious. I mean, it was just as I was writing, it just felt like that would be the that would be what I would want to see her do in that moment when she finds the hallway. I know that I'm not going to have her just walk down a dark hallway. That's crazy. So (laughs) so I'm trying to keep her believable. She says no. And then time goes by and she realizes, like, I'm just going to sit here for who knows how long. Well, let me see if I can get a peek. So it was just that was my thought process of just like, what would she really do? And I could believe she would aim the mirror. I could believe if she sees a doorknob that she would be like, well, okay, it's been three hours. There's a door. Maybe I can, maybe, maybe it leads out. I could believe then that she would walk down there. Now I think I lose some people in this movie when Keith is screaming, help me from the bottom of those stairs and the new staircase. And she goes down the stairs. I've, I've heard pretty, uh, pretty consistently that, you know, when, when some people, the issue some people have with this movie is like that that's a bridge too far. Okay. Fair, you know, fair enough. I I I can't fault anybody for having that opinion. For me, it's like that's her whole engine. You know, it's like she says, "I can't go back." When she's on the couch talking to Keith about her her toxic relationship, you know, her her character is like for me. You know, I I, this is not on the on the page at all. But she's the child of an alcoholic. I'm the child of an alcoholic. What that means is that I bend myself into whatever shape the person I'm with wants me to be. You know what I mean? So I am a doormat often. And, and this is my life's work is to try and try and overcome this part of myself. But like, so for Tess, the idea that she's in a toxic relationship where she's like, she's assumed the, the behavior that the person she's with wants. She keeps going back. She can't stop putting others before herself. That's her character flaw. That's what she has to overcome. The literal extreme of that is infantilization. So when the mother is making her drink out of a bottle, that's me saying, like, this is what I am. Like, I'm a baby, like being forced into a role I didn't choose for myself. And so to me, her going down after Keith when he's saying help me is like just perfectly in line with who she is. And that's why her last line of the movie is I can't go back when she before she shoots the mother. She's she's talking about Marcus She's talking about herself. She's talking about like, I have got to break the pattern. And so she shoots them. So, so to me, it's like, I understand if some people have a problem with that. Maybe that's a deficiency of the script, but I, I, for me, it's a parable about myself and about what I need to work on as a person. And so I, I'm, I totally love that she goes down into the, into the dark after Keith and that, that she has to do it.
0: Yeah. I mean, the, the film kind of necessitates that she does. It'd be a pretty straight film without that. Right, right, right. Yeah. Um, <laughs> there's also that there's also that. Yeah. Um, We touched on it earlier. Like you were writing this scene. You didn't know that it was a feature and you had the characters go down into the basement and you hit, you hit a bit of a brick wall from the sounds of things. Mm -hmm. You didn't know how to, how to proceed in a way that wouldn't kind of have Keith then kill Tess and, or, or something happened that sort of felt kind of tropey, I suppose. Right. So instead, speaking of brick walls, you had a giant naked woman stomp into the frame and bash Keith's head into one. Right. From that moment on, what was your process then for finding the mythology of who that woman was? Like, what might have contributed to her appearance, her strength, her placement in this basement? All those things.
1: Yeah, this is not going to be a very satisfying answer, um, I'm afraid. But the the real truth of it is, as I wrote that, she comes out of the darkness. All of her story came out with her in that moment. Like wow, when really? she when she appeared and, and grabbed him, I knew I knew in that four seconds what she was and what this was. It all just was like it was like the whole lore came with her. Of like, of course, of course, she's down there. Of course, that's who built her father, built her father and grandfather, the same person, you know, and maybe great grandfather built this. Like it was just the perfect, it was the perfect thing that I think was always there. You know, I think that's the other thing is like when you obey your subconscious, it will reward you. I really believe it. So it's like, I think I knew even when she found the secret door, oh, like, I don't think I consciously knew it. But I think inside of me, I knew there's a man many generations ago who built this as his like Fritzl, you know, kind of a tunnel. And what would be, what would else, what would be down there? Maybe him still as a very old man and maybe his like really fucked up offspring. I don't think I had that in my head. I mean, I didn't have that in my head when I was writing all the stuff of her going down to find Keith in the depths and the cages and all that. I knew the cages. I knew, I knew at that point it's like, okay, some someone a long time ago built this. But when the mother came out, it was the first time like my conscious mind really accepted like, okay, she is the offspring of the original terror of this place that is of course true and i didn't need to think too deep about it it was just right there like the fact that she existed summed everything up for me so um yeah that that was it it it, it just was a it was a flash
0: hey this is al just jumping in to tell you about two of our great sponsors this week breaking into hollywood as an aspiring writer can be a confusing convoluted thing Fortunately, ScreenCraft is here to help writers with both the craft of writing and the business of Hollywood. ScreenCraft has everything for your writing journey, from video lectures starring your favourite writers to hands-on career coaching with their excellent writer development team. These guys offer the best screenwriting competitions designed to help your talent shine, featuring judges that really know their genre, from top literary reps to Oscar-winning screenwriters. Hundreds of past winners and finalists have started their careers with the direct support of ScreenCraft, winners have been staffed on shows at netflix amazon apple tv plus the list goes on they've also sold scripts and been hired to write films for the likes of universal lionsgate blumhouse and hulu so if you're an aspiring writer what are you waiting for don't wait to check out screencraft today visit screencraft.org or click the link in today's show notes support for this episode also comes from arc studio pro screenwriting to me is all about immersion I want to stay immersed in that dreamy, fantasy-like state while I weave my story and craft my characters. I don't want to be distracted by anything and I certainly don't want to be thinking about text formatting. Arc Studio Pro understands that. It's so intuitive, it has a minimal and dare I say beautiful interface that allows me to stay completely focused on the story I'm trying to tell. To take your screenwriting to the next level, visit arcstudiopro.com forward slash apart where you can either download a free version or get $30 off a pro account to unlock its full host of amazing features. Use the code FRIENDS at checkout to get that discount. That's arcstudiopro.com forward slash script apart. Okay, let's get back to the conversation. And I, I don't think I've ever experienced a form of whiplash quite like that cut from, you know, that that particular moment of violence to Justin Long's character, AJ, singing in uh-huh. his car on the Pacific right. Highway. Um, I'm excited to talk about AJ's character. Sure. But- I feel like it's worth asking at this moment about the title of this movie. Like you've described having originally typed it in as just kind of a placeholder, True. Um, but then you kind of uh, from the sounds of it realized, wow, Again, my subconscious, my synapses are firing in ways that I'm, I wasn't particularly aware of to kick off with. I it's don't think title- my
1: subconscious can take credit for some of the weirdness about the title because I just <laughs> didn't know that information. I'm not I'm not a that much of a genius sponge. Like, I think what you're hinting at and and I'll just say it is like, yeah. I didn't realize. Maybe I did deeply, but I don't think I did. I, I did not realize that "barbarian" is a is a mutated anagram of Airbnb, which is like thematically yeah. perfect. Copy of a copy of a copy. <laughs> mutation, mutation, mutation. Airbnb, barbarian. It's fucking perfect. Yeah, I did not think of that. Some someone on Reddit told me that, and I was like,
0: "Holy shit, I'm a genius." <laughs> um, but Zach, how about the fact though that like. There is an ambiguity to that word. Like, that I like. That yeah. well,
1: that was the point. That, that I was doing intentionally. It was like, okay, barbarian is a word you don't hear too much in this day and age. It implies brutality. It implies savagery. And I think I'm writing a movie about a predator who's going to do something horrible to this woman. This is a pretty opaque word that kind of gets the gist out there. And I think in my first sitting down and writing session, I wrote that the street was Barbary Street. Yeah. I think, I can't remember, maybe I retrofitted that after I thought of the title, Barbarian. I really don't remember, um, but it just seemed like, okay, bar- Barbarian, for for now, this will work. This feels like a horror movie title, let's go. And then I, I that was day one, you know? And um, I always thought I would change it. And then as I just kept writing it, I just got more and more attached to it. And so yeah. when it was done, I was just like, it's it's Barbarian,
0: that's what it is. But-
1: and then I found out that like the address of the house 476, Barbary. 476 is the year the barbarians sacked Rome. I didn't know that. And then <laughs> yeah. I learned that like the etymology of the word barbarian, where it was like a word that the Greeks used as a pejorative to describe the Persians, because they thought that their language sounded like someone going bar, 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 bar. So they started calling them barbarians as like a diss. Yeah. And... And that's where the word, and then the word, kind of changed to mean anyone that is not one of us, like a savage outsider. But the idea that it started mocking someone because their language was ba 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 ba, which is the only thing the mother says, is ba ba ba, and it's like that's so perfect. I can't believe it, but I believe me, I did not know that. So it's just a happy accident, but I, I love it. You know, I think it's fantastic.
0: Well, I bring up the title in relation to AJ because. Well, from my perspective, you know the the word, the title "Barbarian," its meaning kind of evolves through the course of the movie. Who it refers to uh, is is ambiguous, depending on what stage you're at in the film. The way that titles typically work, you know, traditionally speaking in the horror genre, you're kind of braced for the mother to be the barbarian that the title refers to. She's physically the most "quote unquote" barbaric, uh, the most monstrous. But over the course of the film of course we're we're exposed to all these characters who are way more monstrous in behavior. Like Frank could be the barbarian of the title. AJ is another type of barbarian. We're seeing kind of different degrees of barbarianism, I don't know if that's a word. Uh, but yeah, it's it's different extremes of the same types of people who are violent in their exploitation of the women in in their vicinity. Can you tell me about how AJ evolved? Um uh, you know, how he began in your mind as a Zach Efron type, um, how he did or didn't kind of uh, become the barbarian of the title in your mind as you wrote the thing, and why, yeah, as you kind of initially started with that Zach Efron mold for the character, why you kind of decided that approach needed a bit of tinkering.
1: Yeah, what a mistake that would have been. Not, not,
0: not, no disrespect to Zach Efron and his ability as
1: an actor, but I just think it was a missed opportunity. You know, the idea. Of a sexual predator being of a, a charming and endearing and very likable person is so much more a realistic and be yeah. terrifying version, you know because if it was some bro that was like kind of villainous, then like you know it wouldn't be as horrifying to go and publicly- you know speak your truth of what they've done to you, but if yeah. it's some like Tom Hanks that everyone loves then that's that's not going to be as as easy for you to go public and be like this guy did this horrible thing going to be like Tom Hanks did what? I don't think so. You know like <laughs> that's that's where people are going to start at. And so I I think that casting casting Justin was really um I was so lucky to have him sign on because because he just naturally brings this golden retriever energy that everyone can't help but but like we Justin is an incredibly likable, you know? And um and so yeah,
0: yeah, I think it's really interesting how the film it, it kind of leverages the connotations that we have both with Justin Long, who you know we think of as this affable boy next door type because of his previous roles, um, and of course Bill Skarsgård, who he, he was Pennywise, he was in it, so you know we we think of him as inherently creepy, I suppose. What we expect from him uh, a performance that's gonna go somewhere dark, that's gonna go somewhere um, terrifying. The film kind of takes our baggage as an audience um, in terms of the the kind of characters we've seen those actors inhabit before, and it uses it against us to kind of keep us on our toes. Um, Another thing that's really fascinating that I wanted to to discuss, Zach, is, I guess, the connection between the Keith portion of the film and the emergence of AJ's plotline. So in the opening act, there's a really interesting exchange in the script between Tess and Keith, where she kind of explains how she has to think differently to the way a man would every single time she walks into a new situation by just by virtue of being a woman. Because, well, men historically don't need to vet every new space they stride into for the dangers that it poses to them. Women, of course, um, really sadly do. The tape measure scene that we get to um, a little bit further on in the film, it's uh, one of the hardest i've laughed in a cinema all year but it's also there's there's also something kind of darkly true that kind of bubbles underneath the surface of that scene the space that tess discovers downstairs in the basement that creepy room with the video camera bloody handprints on the wall all that sort of thing she walks into that space and she interprets it through the danger that it poses to her aj walks into the same space and just sees dollar signs. You know, he's excited about the extra value that all this floor space is going to add to his property that he's trying to sell. Um, as I say, it's it's a hilarious scene, but there is something dark bubbling underneath that speaks to that scene earlier where Tess is explaining, men get to just blast their way through life, and I have to kind of constantly be aware of the dangers that are sort of posed at me. Was was that connective tissue? Was that something that came instinctively first draft? Or did you kind of have to tinker and, and hone in on that while writing subsequent drafts?
1: No, no, that that came. Um, and truth be told, as I, when I'm writing AJ measuring the basement, I'm not consciously thinking, now this is a perfect commentary on what Tess said. This is just me being in AJ, you know, just being, inhabiting that character as a writer and thinking, how does he... How does he see this? You know what? What is this
0: for him? So I, 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 I again, uh, you know, it was not conscious. It's an incredibly funny scene, though, and it's it's perhaps the biggest thumbprint of your background in comedy. Uh, you know, that that was your career before stepping into horror. And I, I think I've read you describe once, like seeing comedy as almost like a mathematical equation, and yeah. horror also kind of having a similar kind of algebraic quality. Yeah, can you talk to me about the overlap between the two and and exactly well, what that formula is that defines great comedy and great horror? Well,
1: the, the the you know the anatomy of a joke and the anatomy of a scare are, are are almost the same, right? It's about timing and subverting expectation to elicit a visceral reaction. You know, so for a joke, you know, you expect A plus B to equal C, but instead A plus B equals D. That surprises me. I laugh. For for you know a scare, it's like I think. I think I know what's around the corner and it's not what I think, or it comes sooner than I think, or, you know, and, and that's, that gets a visceral reaction. I heard, you know, I had a, um, this is more on the comedy front, but I had a professor in college. I took a comedy writing class in college. And and my professor said that everything you've ever found funny follows the same equation. And I don't know if I agree with it, but I think about this all the time I have for 20 years, I've thought about this. So everything you found funny is this, um, An action with an expected outcome yields an unexpected outcome. That's all funny things follow that. And I was like, that can't be true. But I defy anybody to present me with an example of something (laughs) funny that doesn't follow that reaction, that equation. Um, And the other thing he said that I thought was really interesting was everything funny is human. Everything intrinsically funny is human. Now, the first thing everyone's probably thinking when I say that is no, my dog is hilarious. Well, right, because you're anthropomorphizing your dog because it has like human qualities that are that are funny, you know, but like a roach is not funny, you know, an amoeba is not funny because it's so removed from from humanity, you know trees are not funny unless you anthropomorphize them. So, that's just that's neither here nor there for the conversation that we're having, but it's just something that I really love to think about is like like the nature of comedy is a deeply human thing about like subverted expectations and um, I don't know. I I I'm I'm very fascinated with that. I'm really I'm still trying to find like an exception to his rule, but I've never found one. <laughs>
0: But you see a certain amount of overlap, do you, between uh, that formula applying to comedy and applying to horror? Like I don't still know how it applies unexpected. to horror, but
1: for certain, it must, right? The subversion of the expectation is, is is a big part of horror, you know? Like Now, there's weird examples that that I can think of that are almost not. Like, you know, there's the, the great David Lynch Mulholland drive scare. Which, you, you know what I'm talking about? Where behind yeah. the diner and the man yeah. comes out. And it's like, now... That scare gives us exactly what he told us was going to happen. He was like behind the diner. There's a man and he's doing it and he's scary. And so we're going to go and we're going to go around the corner and we know like it's the middle of the day. We fucking we know we're going to see something horrible once we turn the corner of that dumpster. And what happens exactly what he told us was going to happen. This man comes out and you're like, "What?" and it's it's a woman dressed as a man. But this man comes out and it's fucking terrifying. <laughs> and it's like, but why? Why? It's like A plus B equals C. And I would posit that he's actually riffing on the riff where we are expecting to be surprised somehow. And so when what happens is actually what we're expecting to happen, where the thing just comes right where it said it was going to come. We're so not prepared for that. (laughs) <laughs> that it's, it actually is like a hat on a hat. It's like a trick on a trick. You know what I mean? I, I don't know if I'm right about this and I could be way off base, but I that is one of the most effective moments of horror I've ever seen. And I'm I, I, it's still a mystery to me why it's so great. I, I love it so deeply.
0: The flashback scene. There was an Austrian movie called Angst that kind right. of inspired this section of the film and mm-hmm. very much like the styling of it, like the way the camera sort of lingers behind the character. Like before I knew that, before that had come up in my research, like I had read the scene as having this almost kind of like video game-like quality. Like the thing it reminded me of was, was Grand Theft Auto, like the way mm. this sort of camera lingers behind the shoulders of this character. And of course, like GTA and things like that, you know, these are kind mm. of, as much as I love them, they're, they're kind of very violent, very male. And uh, yeah, they're kind of representative of a certain culture. Was was that purposeful? Was uh, is that kind of off base? Like, uh, was it, was it solely angst? This Austrian movie that kind of um, inspired the execution of this section.
1: It was it was angst, and it was Elephant. Um, and oh, the Gus when Man I Sands. say no, the Irish Elephant, that Gus Van Sant's Elephant is based off of. Um, right, okay, there's a 45 minute made for TV film uh, in the 80s in Ireland about the Troubles, called Elephant, and it's a series. It's sort of a, a plotless almost dialog film, that's a series of like seven or eight murders. And, and basically that movie plays out where you follow a man for like four minutes silently through the city, and then he'll walk into an alley or into a deli or into some place and he'll murder another person. And then the camera just stays on the corpse for like two minutes. And then it just cuts to another man and you follow him for like four minutes and then he'll murder someone and it stays on the corpse. And it goes again and again and again. And it's this like bizarre, very dreadful movie. Uh, and it's called Elephant because the elephant in the room in Ireland was The Troubles. And it's like, let's talk about the elephant in the room. Let's have this conversation. Right, it's a really yeah. brilliant movie. And Gus Van Sant appropriated it in a brilliant way. And I fully love his movie. So So Elephant in America is like, let's talk about the elephant in the room. Let's talk about Columbine. And 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 yes, you know, I was very inspired by his elephant. Also, I actually think that the Gus Van Sant elephant movie is one of the scariest movies I've ever seen because I was so it was so dreadful following these kids through these hallways of this high school because you know at some point they're going to round a corner and shots are going to start. It's going to pop off. You don't know when. You don't know if they're going to die. You don't know what's going to happen, but you know it's coming. It's inevitable. It's like a. It's like gravity. It's like. It's just so so tense. And I was mesmerized by his use of this wide angle lens, following his subject. Um, and, and the visceral, palpable dread that, that just came with that visual vocabulary. So, so angst and elephant together kind of were my, my north stars. That's a weird, whatever. I, that's a clunky way of saying it. But those, those were my, 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 um, my guides for, for that sequence.
0: And the way in that sequence, you're harnessing like uh, a lot of the iconography of the time, and you, you're you're really signalling to the audience the period that it's set in. Was that just a case of like, for narrative purposes, you needed to make clear like we're flashing back here, or was there anything about like the America of that time that you feel like you were kind of you or your subconscious was kind of like putting onto the page, putting onto the screen?
1: I wasn't consciously trying to make any point about America. It just felt like the right move, you know, to go back and see this neighborhood healthy and see like the beginning of this, you know, how did these tunnels who built the tunnels? You know, I thought that would be something I would want to see briefly. And so telling this, this new kind of chapter, of, of a I also knew that we needed a we needed a moment of respite after the intensity of AJ falling in the in the tunnel I couldn't go from AJ getting chased through the tunnel and falling in the pit straight to the bottle in the nursing I was just like that's just it's too much it's just it, it's going to just drain everybody and so I've already earned a flashback you know I feel like I've earned the trust from the audience that they know I'm going to, you know, I'm not going to abandon them. You know, I didn't before. I'm not going to do it this time. I'm going to bring them back. And I, and I felt like to see the house and its, in its old glory would be intriguing. And I think I could, I could, I could hold people's attention for 10 minutes, um, with this diversion and then come back and pick up where we left off. And I think people would be grateful to have a little bit of a of a reset breathing room kind of a thing so it was sort of that honestly where it came from to be to be totally candid about a year and a half into shopping the script around and getting nobody on board a producer an independent producer uh read it and liked it and he said he was in and i was over the moon and the frank stuff wasn't in the script at that point um and he said he he was like i only have one note he's like it needs a new dimension I don't know what that is, but it just feels like it needs one more layer of, like of, of, of something. It's not deep enough. And so I was shooting some documentary up, upstate and I, um, and I was in my hotel. I was like, I'd finished my workday and I was just like, Oh, I just had the idea of the flashback. So I wrote the flashback. I, wrote, I, I, kinda, I thought it really did add a good depth dimension to the, to the script. And I sent it back to this guy and he never responded. He never <laughs> I respond. I worked so hard and he like, he ghosted me, dude. He straight up ghosted. And it hurt my feelings like so bad. Like you don't even know. I, I was like, I guess he he hated it. And um, I don't know. I've st- I've never spoken with him again. I still have no idea like what, what happened or, or why I, I think, I think he's probably, you know, he must know about the movie at this point but uh but um yeah but i'm glad that that happened because he did push me to add a new a new layer to the movie and i I think it makes the movie so much stronger so you know it felt at the time like a a real blow and it certainly was to my ego but you know i have to i have to thank the guy now because like hey man (laughs) thanks for that you 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 got it there
0: so So i guess he's a good
1: producer (laughs) yeah i guess so (laughs) i guess he is
0: a little bit of a ghosty one, but that's okay. Yeah. Um, so in that first draft then without Frank, like, was it just kind of a mystery as to where the mother came from? You have
1: to just guess, you know, I thought it was kind of clear. I was like, clearly some dude has like built this and she's the offspring. But like what wasn't in there was, you know, AJ doesn't go deeper into the tunnels and find Frank. Doesn't find the videotapes. Doesn't get the gun. Doesn't shoot Tess. Uh, instead, Tess escapes, gets the cops Um, comes back in and like, I can't remember how, but somehow gets AJ out and then the denouement happened on a church nearby and everything plays out kind of the same, but there was no, there was no Frank flashback. There was no
0: Frank in the, in the tunnels. Um, There was no, no gun. You mentioned the videotapes there. Mm -hmm. So by my count, there are three moments in this movie where, the story could have played out slightly differently. Like, not necessarily okay. narrative-wise, but certainly in terms of, like, the message and, for want of a better phrase, like, the sort of feministic values of, of the film. Like, so first okay. of all, there's a moment in which the audience gets to see AJ adm- admit that he raped his colleague. Right. Uh, you know, he's, he's drunk with his pal at a bar. Uh, you could have just Boy, it, me. I, I might. I, I, I was going to say, I recognise <laughs> the back of that head. Um, <laughs> yeah. you, you could have... Easily left it as allegations and had some ambiguity around it, but instead, no—like you were very forthright about, like making it clear for the audience, this is this is a bad guy. Secondly, when AJ comes across the videotapes in Frank's room in the basement, you make the decision to have AJ see the footage, but not the audience, Mm -hmm. because presumably because that'd be gratuitous. And then finally, there's the ending kind of confrontation where you know you tease like a redemption. Or at least some sort of realisation on AJ's part that he has not been a good person, that he has yeah. amends to make. And then, uh, obviously, that that is not how it plays out. <laughs> It seems to me there's something kind of threaded through all these different decisions and, you know, you were giving quite a lot of consideration, it seems, to the right thing to do in regard to making this movie a film that kind of aspires to feminist values and and does that stuff well. It is really easy, as Keith finds in that opening scene, to be kind of clumsy when trying to kind of do the right thing, say the right thing in these regards. yeah. How did you approach all those calls? Was this another kind of instinctive thing that just came easily? It, did you have to tinker? It
1: was. No, it was instinctive. So the Keith stuff, you know, and, and I'm, I'm glad you said that, that Keith is very clumsy in the way he's, like, managing the situation. That's me, man. I don't wanna act I don't wanna come (laughs) off like I'm I'm some woke, you know, I know how to handle all this stuff. I wrote Keith like me. Like I would have said all that shit, dude. I would have been I I probably wouldn't have said pretty name. I'm smarter than that. I I know that's not good. But I would have like, if I was gonna have wine, I don't drink, but if I if I was in that situation. I would have rambled and be like, I saw you didn't drink your tea and I totally get it. Like, this is weird. And you probably think I'm like, you know, but so I I wait, like, I would have been that dumb. Um, Mm -hmm. I don't think Keith is a bad guy. He's just, he's just not suave. He's not, (laughs) he's not, he is, he has what I have, which is a tendency to speak before he thinks. Um, and in that situation, you know, it can be alarming. So, so yeah, so that was just me writing me. Also Tess is me too. So, you know, I've got two me's kind of going back and forth at each other, but it's fine. Um, and then with AJ, you know, it's based off of, it's an amalgamation of people I've met and, um, and conversations that I have not necessarily had myself, but that have been related to me of people defending their behavior. Uh that mm-hmm. scene in the bar is is really directly lifted from um a conversation that people I know had. And uh and I just uh, so that that's where that comes from. That's just that's the way that I think I think that most rape and I could be wrong about this. This is just this is me and my limited guess, you know, I'm not saying this is the case, but I would I would posit that most rape is coercive. You know, it's not like knife to your throat, it's like, it's like a man is coercing a woman and it gets to the point where she realizes I'm, this is going to happen whether I want it to or not. So if I play ball, it's going to be a little bit less traumatic than a straight up violent rape. I think that is what most rape looks like. And it doesn't make it any less horrible. It's still rape and it's still a fucking crime. And these you know, it's wrong. I think that men can rationalize after an event like that. That it wasn't rape. It was. It was just eh, you know, girls. Girls like to play hard to get, and part of the natural yin and yang of men and women is that like you, you know you can't quit. I think that's what like rapists think to themselves. It's like you know I'm persistent. She came around. You know, it's like that's that's how you tell yourself the story, and that's not how it went down, and that's not how she sees it. And I so that that's where that scene came from. And I think it's important that we know, AJ. I think to answer your question is like, I'm ambiguous about a lot in this movie. I'm not ambiguous about whether AJ did it. Um, and that's because to me, I want to know because I want people to relish what happens to him when he gets his justice. <laughs> Frankly, you know, it's that simple. It's really that simple. It's like, yeah. I don't want to be smart. I want it to be
0: fun when he gets his eyes ripped, ripped out, you know. <laughs> Fuck him. <'em. laughs> How did you land on that particular way of him dying? It so, yeah, uh, wasn't like, what was in the script. You, you read the script, right? I was going right? to say, so, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah.
1: I think it just became clear, like, and f- and the way the homeless man is killed is not how it is in the script. Um, Can you describe for
0: our listeners how, how, it, how it plays out in the in script? In the
1: script, well, so the homeless man in the script is killed. She, she Kool-Aids herself through the wall and she grabs him one arm around his neck, one arm around his arm, shoulder like his arm at his armpit and she pulls him in half and his like guts spill down out of his body now that's just that's so ridiculous uh not to say that ripping someone's arm off is not ridiculous it is (laughs) but it's a little it's a little less ridiculous than that and also i just realized that like you know we we were such a shoestring budget such a tight schedule i was like i'm i don't have the resources to pull this off like it was just clear it was it was gonna look bad because originally also when keith died she smashes his head into the wall and then she rips his lower jaw out of his head and then stabs his own jawbone into his eyes. And we tried to shoot that and it didn't look good. You can actually see in the final movie when she drops him, his jaw's missing because we'd filmed that she rips his jaw out. And the, and the problem was that it looked rubber and we couldn't get the jaw to stat. Your jaw's is actually, Actually wider than your eye sockets. So it was like, it was impossible. And then we had to cut the jaw so that it could stick in and just look fake. And I just realized after shooting the Keith death, I was like, okay, I got to rethink all these deaths. So I knew I couldn't rip Andre in half. So I was like, what I know I can get away with is we can rip his arm off. Like that's easy. E- even though it wasn't, we had to reshoot the, the gore moment because the first time didn't look right. So we had to reshoot that near the end of the, of the movie. And then Justin's death... In the script, she she wraps her hands around his throat so tight and she applies so much pressure to his neck that it forces uh, an eruption like a volcano of blood to come out of every orifice in his head. So his ears, his eyes, his nose and his mouth all just like fire hose blood, like like she's like squeezing the guts of him out of his head. And that's really unrealistic. Doesn't work that way, I know, but I just thought I'd never seen that. I wanted to see it. I was like, this would be cool <laughs> if I could pull this off. Um, yeah. but we couldn't pull it off. like we didn't have the resources and it was it, it was about three days until we were shooting that scene and I was looking at the plans we had in place of filming it and I just could tell I was like the writings on the wall like we gotta we gotta figure this out. And I knew like, okay, so what what's something that's gonna be achievable and still new? And I was like, well, I've never seen somebody lever, like stick their thumbs and eyes and use that as leverage to pull a head apart. I was like, that can't be that hard. We just get like a fake head and we shoot it from behind and we just watch the head shape change. I was like, that's doable. <laughs> I know that's doable. And they they agreed. And then I was like, so we just, what we really need is just to worry about like, we had a mold of Justin's face for my plan A, you know? Um, so we already had the mold, thank God. And i was like let's just we'll just we'll just we'll just destroy the mold we'll stick the thumbs in the eyes and so really it was about getting the goop of the eyes right i think we had two takes of the eye stab one was like too much blood and then the one we finally got where it looked like jelly like clear yeah yeah which is good and then we had one take of the uh from the over the shoulder where she like pops the head and i wasn't happy with it quite frankly (laughs) Um, I, I didn't get enough. I wanted blood to like shoot out of his face and like, kind of coat her. And the blood like had worked so well in the like test. And then when we filmed it, like the blood just didn't work. And, and we didn't, we were, we were so low on sun that I didn't have time to do a take two. We just, we had to keep moving or we weren't going to be able to finish the movie. Like when she's walking away at the end and the sun is rising in the background, I didn't want there to be sun there. You know, that wasn't part of the plan. I wanted it to be night. You know, it was like the sun came up and that was like, we're done. The sun is up. It's daytime. We're done. No more filming. Um, so I don't know, man. That, that's that's what happened. But then you fix these things with audio, you know, so then I got in the yeah. edit and I was so upset because it was like, oh, it doesn't look right. And then and then you add all these great sounds and then it, suddenly it, it's
0: cool. And and why this sort of note of sympathy towards the mother in that quite tender final scene between her and Tess. Yeah. Well that,
1: you know, to me, the mother is an innocent, you know, like all the best movie monsters, King Kong, even Leatherface are like innocent. You know, they're, they're just working with what they, what they can with the tools at their disposal and their limited tools. You know, King Kong is not a bad entity. He's just, he's an animal and he's capable of great love. He just, he's just, doesn't fit into our society, you know, into our world. And so we treat him as a monster. And I think that is what a great monster is. It's someone that's not inherently evil. They just don't fit. You know, Leatherface is not a, he's not evil. He's just, he's a machine. He was raised to slaughter and he's a simpleton. And he just doesn't know that like these teenagers that keep invading his house, like, he he only knows how to deal with them one way. When you're a hammer, everything's a nail. Those those kids happen to be <laughs> nails. Sorry. <laughs> Sorry kids, but he's not he's not he's not a villain and I don't think the mother is evil. You know, she has only witnessed two forms of behavior, her father's overwhelming violence and this videotape of mother love that she's watched ad infinitum her entire life. So she's a binary. You know, she, there's nothing in between. And so I really love that about her. I love that she's not this monster in the basement. She's this person that's, that's, that's deeply, deeply ill-equipped to function with other people. And it's sad to me um that she never had a chance. And, and it, a beautiful thing came out of working with Matthew who played her where, you know, I made the videotape that she watched. That was the first thing I, I filmed was like, you know, the nursing video and and before i filmed it he was like hey can you send me the nursing video because i'd really love to mimic the behavior of the woman in the video and i was like oh buddy brilliant i haven't even filmed it yet but but that gave me the idea to work in all these gestures for him to emulate so the boop of the nose was like he can boop justin's nose i'll make the woman boop the baby and like the kiss on tessa's forehead is like oh like that's so beautiful that like She's being the mom from the video. She loves this baby. And like, that's a final moment. And so, um, thank God Matthew had that idea.
0: And this isn't really a screenwriting question, but I'm curious about it nonetheless. In the fallout of this movie's kind of runaway success... Did you happen to hear at all from Airbnb themselves? Like no, in my head, no, some no. poor member of the publicity wonder, team probably I had to call cool up their boss one day. I wonder <laughs> if they've been scrambling like, what is this What is this
1: movie doing to us? What the hell? But, um, <laughs> you know, this is this is so extreme. It's a fantasy. I, I've used Airbnb so much of my life and, and uh, I have had some really bad experiences. I mean, I got, I checked into it. I had an Airbnb once. I didn't realize it was in a terrible neighborhood. I got there very late at night and the lockbox didn't work. And it was like two in the morning, dude. And it was a rough area. And the lockbox, I couldn't get my key, couldn't get in. And I was stranded and I was really upset. I remember a cop drove by, I flagged him down. It's like, I just want you to know I'm gonna break into this house because I'm supposed to be in there, but like the lockbox won't work. So I just want you to know, you know, I'm breaking in, and he was like, "Don't break in," and he was like, "No, you're not." And I was like, "What the fuck?" So, so yeah, I mean, you—it's not a hotel, you know—it's not a hotel, and and you're kidding yourself if you think you don't have to be more careful. You're entering into a stranger's home, you know, and uh, it, it's it's different.
0: I hadn't actually asked about the cops in this movie, right? How did they kind of figure into your plans for this? Like, it, it seems like, again, like the the narrative could have theoretically, if the studio or whoever had wanted to sort of trim this thing, like the the same story could play out without them. But it is such an interesting kind of quirk of the script. The fact that Tess kind of meets these cops and they're just completely uh, nonplussed by everything she's
1: yeah. saying. Yeah. I wasn't trying to make a comment on... on uh- anything related to like police in America I really wasn't it's impossible it's 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 almost reckless for me to say that because it's so loaded in America that any portrayal of police in America is political and someone's going to take issue with it whether it's it's police or or affected people or whatever so i recognize i'm i'm wading into very fraught territory here but to me it was just a device to give her a false victory you know she gets out she gets the cops they, but what do they do? They bring her and they leave her at the worst place at the worst time where she's not supposed to be here at night. And all of a sudden, now it's night and they're leaving her. And it's like, you are it's worse than, than it was. So I just thought that was just too good. I could, Honestly, I couldn't think of a better idea for it. It just felt right. It was just like, you know, I obey the story as it comes to me. And, you know, a lot of times when I'm trying to, when I'm stuck, I remember for that, I didn't know what to do. When she got out of the house, I had no idea. So what I'll do a lot is I'll, I'll, I'll open up a notes document and I'll just, I'll give myself a homework assignment and say, I have 10 minutes to write five bad ideas of what, what can happen to this character. They, and, and I don't want any of them to be good. So I'm gonna write five terrible ways that this movie could play out for the next 12 pages. So I just bl- start blasting them out. And I think that the cop one was the second one. And and it was one of those ones where it's like, as soon as I wrote that, I was like, well, that's what it is. I don't need to write anymore. It worked. The exercise worked. And I still do that all the time. And when I get stuck, I'm like, okay what are five horrible options I can do to like resolve this this
0: jam? And, And sometimes you get lucky that way. So obviously Hollywood moves pretty quickly when a film has been as successful as Barbarian has been. Have you been sounded out about a sequel or exploring this world in greater depth? Is that something you'd be interested in?
1: I have been. My initial reaction was no, because I feel like the, the, what works about Barbarian isn't the subject matter of the, of the story, but more the, the, the method in which the story unravels. And I don't think that's something you can ever replicate or duplicate. So, so I was for a long time. So I I've been sort of at a loss and kind of like poo pooing the idea of a sequel, because what would that be? Like another movie about a rape dungeon? Like, no thanks. But then I do think that there is, there is maybe a way to do a tangential story about, about this world that, that takes the perspective of a character that you might not expect and following them in a way that would, that would really, um, allow us to play with the same unfolding of a mystery kind of wrapped up in this world. So I, I I know I'm being a little vague. I don't want to get too deep into, into it at this stage. It's too early, but, but I do think that there is, there is room for a, uh, there is room for another good story in this world. Um, but, but I can, I can promise you, um, the conversations have not been, have not been, uh, Two in the weeds, like they're they're very cursory at this point. I'm I'm writing another horror movie right now that I'm very excited about. That will hopefully, if I'm lucky enough to make another movie, it will be it will be the one I'm currently writing. Um, and so I'm really putting all of my energy into that.
0: At the top of the show, you mentioned uh, the favorite thing you'd ever written, and previously I've heard you speak in glowing terms about a project set in the world of Batman. I think is how you described it. Right. Is that the thing you were, you were referring to? And has the success of Barbarian put you any closer to being able to make that?
1: Um, it, yes, that's what I'm referring to. I I have a story that takes place in Gotham city and, uh, I, I just, I love it. And, and this is the story I wrote that was truly Blake Snyder beach sheet. To the T, you know, <laughs> I, and and, and it, it's it, but it doesn't feel formulaic. That's the beauty to me of of the save the cat formula is that it is formulaic, but if you pull it off, it just feels like a compelling story. And I, yeah. I'm very proud of this script. I'm 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 very very happy with it. I think it's really. It's like a Swiss watch. And um, so, yeah, you know, I don't know what's going to happen with that. You know, I I don't think I'm uh, my my go to quote is I don't think I'm going to get the keys to that car anytime soon. And that's okay. I have another movie I'm very excited to make, uh, hopefully in the the next year. Um, But maybe one day there will be an opportunity to make that. And I would I would leap at that
0: opportunity. And that's that's all I'm going to say about it. And in terms of this next project that you are moving on to, again, you've described it as a horror movie. Are there similarities to barbarian in terms of the surprises or like anything is it a completely different breed of horror how would you describe it
1: it's um well it's weirder than barbarian um <laughs> and it's i think that like barbarian it's it's smart and stupid you know um i'll say that it's 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 definitely dumb smart uh which is how i would describe barbarian um and it's it's uh it does not follow a 3x structure you know it's uh I I hate I I really don't want to pigeonhole myself as like the structured guy like this is the guy that like you know jumps all <laughs> over the place like I, I i'm i'm very gun shy of of doing that but this story just wants to be told in this way it wants to be kind of fragmented and kind of a little scattered it's not as disorienting like in barbarian i'm intentionally kind of disorienting the audience and in in this new one i'm not um so as as much as it's it's a bizarre you know atypical structure it's never it's never confusing mm-hmm. I hope um but I'm very excited about it it feels it feels much more ambitious you know David Bowie has this great quote where he says like you should always be wading into deeper and deeper creative waters and you're never quite sure if you're gonna drown or not like i, I I'm doing that uh <laughs> it's a bigger swing than barbarian was but I think <laughs> I think it might ultimately be a better movie I, I hope so anyways you know
0: if not what am I doing that's really exciting man of course the big question that is on everyone's mind is what life hack are you going to what duvet style life hack you going to thread into this one because dude look let me just swing my camera around oh yeah hey look at that oh look at that perfect that's the perfect distribution
1: (laughs) um if you've if you've ever had trouble dicing tomatoes this movie is going to sort you right out (laughs)
0: i got you zach on that note thank you so much man this has been so much fun and again congratulations on barbarian thank you thank you so much for taking the time i appreciate it man you've been listening to script apart hosted by me al horner produced by camille Demek. thanks for tuning in we'll see you next time